Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatives Podcast. This is a midweek-ish episode, one of these episodes in which I take the audio from the sermon recorded in my parish, and I put that at the end of this video, uh, and then I talk about the text beforehand for all the people who haven't, who, who have already heard the sermon so they can cut off early, but for those who are maybe preparing for a Trinity 13 sermon of their own, again, this would probably be uh, a year later. This isn't particularly useful since Trinity 13 just happened, but in case you're trying to do that, maybe you'll get something from from what I have uh, what I've compiled here mentally. Now, the notes that I have compiled for the sermon, the 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 sorts of things that I'm talking about regarding the text, usually they're um, they're a combination of things I heard from Issues Etc. and from the Goddess Deans podcast, far superior podcast that will also talk about this. Also, uh, Brian Wolfmuller does a recording of Luther's House Postal Sermons, those I also listen to, to kind of get ideas. Uh, in addition to that, I read Lenski. It's a it's a big green book. This is this uh, guy who comments on the text, uh, as well as the Concordia, these big blue books, these Concordia series on uh, on the various books. So those are those are generally some of the some of the sources. I of course I also read the <laughs> I also read the newts the newts the notes in the Lutheran Study Bible at the bottom of the page. So if you're wondering where I get all this nonsense from, well, it's from those places. And then I kind of gather up all this information, try to distill it into something that I can that I can you know chew on a little bit and and use in a sermon. Um, the problem that you don't realize maybe that your pastor goes through is is he ends up studying hours and hours and hours and hours and just consuming so much so much content on a, on a single text, but only can distill it down to a let's say to a 10 to 30 minute long sermon to, to give to you in spite of having hours of the stuff. You know, the question is, well, how much of this content do you use? How much of it is specifically relevant? Is there something in particular you want to talk on? And this is one of the, one of the issues uh, for this, this text in particular, this text is the Good Samaritan text. So it's Trinity 13. The text is, well, the gospel text in any case is Luke chapter 10 verses 23 through 37. Uh, again, there's, you know, obviously there's other texts that the epistle text, the Old Testament, um, uh, the Psalm, that sort of thing. But in this case, I was focusing on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'll start off by reading the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then I'll talk about some of the uh, some of the interesting things that came up to, to consider, either writing this sermon or previous year's sermons. So, Luke chapter 10, verses 23 through 37, and this is in the ESV if you'd like to follow along. Then, turning to the disciples, he said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law, how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when they saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set up on his 
set him up on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you need, whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. One of the things I um, I modify a little bit, I don't like to modify <laughs> biblical text too much, but in this case, there's a lot of, and he said to him, and he, and he replied to him kind of language. And when I'm giving the sermon, sometimes I'll break up, I'll break up a verse or I'll break up, you know, a couple of verses and I'll, and I'll put them in. And if it's just starting out with, he said to him, who is the he and who is the him that is talking to? So one of the things that I like to modify for the listeners is, is instead of he, and you may hear this in the sermon, instead of he, I maybe replace one of the he's with Jesus and one of the hymns with the lawyer or something like that, just to give, give you an idea of who is talking to whom. Um, again, if you're reading the text all the way through, it's not so much of a problem, but it's more of a problem if you're, you're breaking up the text. So if you're planning a sermon and, and, you're, and you're reading this text and you have a, a chunk and he said to him and he replied to him, uh, it can be helpful to your listeners to kind of let them remind them who who he and who who him are, uh, who him is, who he is. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what I'm talking about. So, anyways, with this text, um, I remember in seminary uh, preaching on this text. Actually, this was one of the well, not really preaching to a congregation, preaching to uh, the other the other seminarians in in, in training. Uh, and I remember this text. This text comes up obviously every year in the one year lectionary. It's a great text. But one of the things that I always got hung up on the text, and the funny thing is I'm not alone talking to other pastors about this, is that this text, you know, is talking about the parable of Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is obviously Jesus. You know, he goes and he rescues the dying man. And, you know, he takes care of him. And then three days later, he returns. That's, you know, he pays, he pays for the day. And then he pays two more denarii, which is two days wages. So that would be three days in total. And then presumably the Good Samaritan will return in three days. So, you know, pretty, pretty obvious that it's Jesus. And when I, when I wrote this, uh, when I wrote a terrible sermon in seminary uh, about it, I made the assumption that everybody who had ever heard the text thought it was talking about how you can be the Good Samaritan. Well, the problem is, um, that is to a degree what Jesus is saying. I mean, like at the end, he says, you go and do likewise. So this time, this time around, all the previous times I've had this sermon, um, I, I specifically focused on, well, Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Yeah, that's all, that's all true. But this time, I wanted to focus on the you go and do likewise. So whereas in the past, I went through the, ser- I went through the, um, I went through the, the story that Jesus tells, and I went through the actual, you can call it a parable or not. It doesn't call it a parable in the Bible. It could be. Who knows? Um, and I went through this this parable, this story, and it kind of went line by line, and I showed how each one kind of stood for Jesus, and, and you know, the three days, the three denarii, that kind of thing. But this time when I gave the sermon, I actually skipped the entire, the entire story. I skipped the entire thing. Uh, I only talked about what was said at the beginning and what was said at the end. Now, there was a section before, at the very beginning, uh, verse 23 through verse 24, uh, when he, he turns to his disciples and said, blessed are the eyes that see, and that sort of thing. Um, immediately, you know, be, behold a lawyer, just like poof, just popped into an existence in front of him. Behold a lawyer, you know, a, a sudden battle. Um, so I, I also kind of skipped that part, 23 and 24, because that's important, but it's not, that's again, the, pro, the, the, the beauty of the text is it's so rich that you can focus on just a, a fragment of the text and really chew on that and really you know, as, as Luther would talk about a text, rubbing rubbing it like an herb between your fingers, a small portion until you get all of the all of the beautiful aroma out of that small portion. 
And so that's what I decided to do here, to focus instead of that first section, 23 and 24, to focus on the conversation with the lawyer before and after the story. I just assume that everybody's familiar with this story, seeing as how, you know, it's one of the most well-known stories uh, in existence. And uh, yeah, there's even, you know, laws, secular laws, you know, the Good Samaritan law and stuff like that. You have an obligation to help somebody if you're, uh, if you see them, if you see them dying or something along those lines. So even the secular world understands kind of the Good Samaritan, this idea of, I mean, isn't that funny though, that, you know, the, the story is you go and do likewise and, and, and the secular world is, you know, they grab onto that. You go and do likewise. I mean, they not, may not know that verse, but they think, you know, Good Samaritan, well, we want to be like the Good Samaritan. Correct. You do want to be like the Good Samaritan. You do want to take care of your fellow man. Um, and, and I was listening to the God of Saints podcast and they were talking about that you need to make it specific because if you just say that everybody's your neighbor, then it doesn't really matter. Like nobody is really special that you're supposed to help. But if you think about something like the Good Samaritan law, it's not that you have to be Superman and fly around to each person who's having a heart attack in the entire world, but it's that if you come across somebody who's particularly struggling, you have an obligation specifically to help them. And again, I, I do think that that encapsulates what's being told here. Now, one thing I focus on in the sermon is that it's not for the sake of justification. You're not supposed to help people because that'll somehow get you into heaven. You're supposed to help people because you're a Christian, and that's what Christians do. It's sanctification. That means once you are a Christian, act like it. How does a Christian behave as a good Samaritan might? Uh, so anyways, let's go through the text a little bit. A couple of things that, that stood out. Um, so again, since I didn't focus on verse 23 and 24, uh, let me see. Well, I guess I'll go through. And turn to the disciples. He said, privately, blessed are the eyes that see that we see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desire to see what you see. They did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I mean, this is absolutely true. We talk about this thing called progressive re- revelation. Uh, people say, well, how is it that Abraham believed and was counted him as righteousness? Did he know that Jesus would come uh, and be born in, you know, in a manger and die on the cross and you know, at age 33 or 36 or whatever? Well, no, not specifically, but he, he had faith in kind of the, the promise of God. The promise, so the Proto-Evangelion comes in Genesis, what is it, 315, 316, something like that, um, where it's a promise that someone will, that the Messiah will come and he'll crush the head of the serpent. And, and that restitution will be made with, with God, reconciliation with the Father. So Abraham believes in that promise, even if he doesn't have the details. And this kind of reinforces this idea that you don't have to have a perfect intellectual understanding of what the Christian faith is in order to have a saving faith. Abraham had a saving faith. He believed in it. It was counted him as righteousness. This doesn't mean that Abraham knew everything that was going to be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's gospel accounts, but this means that he did have, he did have trust in, in, in God and the promises of God, however God would, would fulfill them. So again, prophets and kings and all these people in the Old Testament, they would have loved to see these things and hear these things in person that the disciples are able to bear witness to. Likewise, I think you and I, I mean, it would be great if, if we were able to see and you know, hear Jesus preach and teach, whether he did it in Greek or Aramaic or whatever. Uh, I don't know how much I'd be able to understand of all of that, but it'd be kind of cool to see, you know, the miracles and stuff like that. That being said, we do have the benefit of having all of these things written down and translated in a language we do understand. So, we even have it better than, than some of the disciples. The disciples were able to see these things in person. We're able to see these things in hindsight. And in hindsight, we can take them with the Old Testament and the New Testament. We can cross-reference them, and we can read the epistles, and we can just, you know, study these things. So this is wonderful. Blessed are, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. So blessed are your eyes. You can read the, read the scripture and get, get all that. So, I mean, there's a good chunk of, of something that you could probably work with there if you wanted a sermon, even just on those two verses. All right, so verse 25. 
And behold, I love this, and behold, and be, <laughs> it's almost a marking thing, and immediately, and behold, a lawyer stood up, I just, just interrupts Jesus to put him to the test. Uh, I love the, the Greek word for, for test, uh, the Greek word for temptation. Uh, I, I often distinguish between the two, and, and the ESV translates this to test, but I often distinguish this between the two. You know, God tempts no one, but God does test people. Well, it's the same Greek word for, for both of these things, uh, but the difference is that a temptation is designed for you to fail. The devil tempts you because he wants you to fail. A test is designed for you to pass. Presumably, if you're given a test in school, this is because the teacher expects you to know the knowledge and expects you to pass. It is expected of you to pass a test. It is expected of you or desired of you to fail a temptation. So in this case, the lawyer sends up to put him to the test. I mean, test is, I guess, it's, it's a fine word to use in the English here, but really, if you want to understand it, it's not, it's not good. He's not trying to uh, to reinforce Jesus's bona fides, bona fides, whatever. Uh, he's trying to challenge Jesus. He doesn't call. So he says, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And I really made, <laughs> I think, like two years ago, I made a big point about this in the sermon. How how stupid of a question that was. What do I do to inherit? Well, you don't do anything to inherit. To inherit something, somebody has to die. Like this is this is why the uh, the parable of the prodigal son is so is so vicious. When the when the prodigal son talks to the father, he says he wants his inheritance now. Well, for inheritance to be given, the person has to die. So the son is essentially saying, "I, I wish you were dead." Um, in this case, what do I have to do to inherit? Well, nothing. What do my kids have to do to inherit my my vast vast fortune? Well, nothing. I just die, and then it goes to them, presumably. Um, so it's kind of a stupid question, but. I mean, you get the you get the point. Uh, basically, so what do I have to do to gain eternal life? Might be a, might be a better way to phrase it, but you know this is what the Greek records. So this is what this is what we say. Now Jesus says to him. So again, he said to him. Jesus said to him, "What is written?" So he asked this question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? So again, this lawyer. I mean, presumably he knows he knows the law cover to cover. He's not a secular lawyer. He's a biblical lawyer. He knows the biblical law. So the, this guy answers. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I think about this, uh, uh, you know, Jesus gets a, the, the one great commandment and the other one that is like it. It is love, love the Lord your God, and the second one is like it, is love your neighbor as yourself. And this is true. So this guy actually answered correctly. Um, and I'm not going to get too much into this because I actually get into this in, in, in the sermon. So if you really want to hear me talk about this, just listen to the sermon after this. All right, uh, verse 28. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you'll live. Obviously, the guy should know that he can't do this perfectly. Again, listen to the sermon, I talk about that. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Um, I love, so again, I was listening to this Goddess Themes podcast thing, and, um, and they were talking about this text, and it just seems like such an obnoxious question. <laughs> it seems like Jesus is like mad at this guy, because he doesn't he doesn't respond to this guy's question directly. He tells, he tells a story, but I mean, imagine, it's like, it's like you're telling your kid to, you know, what do I have to do? What must I do to inherit ice cream after dinner? Well, you have to clean your room. But what is my room? I share it with, you know, two other kids. And what technically is my room? And it's just, it's like, you know what? You know what? Maybe you shouldn't get ice cream because you're being such a little snot. <laughs> you know, um, it's it's that sort of attitude that this guy that this guy has. He's trying to avoid responsibility. That he's failed in what is required of him. He's failed in what in, in, in what is laid out for him in the law. So he's trying to find another way around it. He's like, well, am I really following the law? And again, the the, the um, one of the podcasts I was listening to was talking about um, that some of this might have to do with um, sort of like racism or nationalism or, you know, whatever this, this, this idea of, of this Jewish lawyers basically saying, do I have to love the Gentiles? Are they really my neighbors or are they my enemy? 
Uh, and I think this is part of the reason why Jesus specifically chooses a Samaritan. Samaritans are not the good guys in these stories. Samaritans are the bad guys. They are the guys who basically kind of claim to be Jewish, but reject a bunch of like the biblical teachings and holy places and, and temple and stuff like that. Uh, I heard somebody compare them to, they're like basically like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll claim to be Christian, but they reject very important aspects of Christianity. So in such a case, the, 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 uh, I was going to say the Jehovah's Witness, <laughs> the Samaritan, yeah, the Jehovah's Witness, uh, him and his buddy, uh, walking with their bicycles. Yeah, uh, the Samaritan is, you know, Jesus is, if this is what this guy's asking, like, I shouldn't consider Samaritans my neighbor, Jesus absolutely destroys that with this, with this story. All right, um, continue verse 30, Jesus replied, so Jesus replies to this guy's statement with, um, with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. All right, so this is this is something, and you know, every first year, a seminary student is going to be able to point this out, that you always go down to Jericho. Jericho is not a good place. You go up to Jerusalem, you go down to Jericho. This is just, that's how it's referred to. You go down to Egypt, you go up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is a good place, Egypt, Jericho, whatever, those are the bad places. Um, and he fell among, so, and there's, I don't know if there's any significance between, you know, he's traveling, Maybe it's a well-traveled road, whatever. And he fell among robbers. Now, this is interesting. I've heard some people say he fell among robbers doesn't necessarily mean that he was just walking down the road and people, robbers jumped out and beat him. But it could mean that he fell in with them in such a way that he was a robber and he was traveling with them and he was actually robbing people. So even more so, um, he gets his just desserts. I mean, he deserves to die. Now, you could, I mean, again, this is maybe reading a bit into the text. But if you want to say that it's because of his own actions that he ends up in this state where he's basically dead, it says half dead, but I mean, the idea is that he's beaten to the point where he's unable to recover, unable to you know, get up and brush it off or whatever. If he's left alone, he will die. And if he got to this state because he was, you know, engaging in sin, I mean, you could, you could draw a pretty good parallel there between, you know, we, you know, we, we get into sin and we don't deserve, we don't deserve salvation. We actually deserve the, you know, the suffering, the death, all this thing, the wages of sin is death. So... If, if you want to say that, I mean, it's reading a bit into the text, but yeah, I could see I could make that argument. He fell in among robbers, something like that. Um, so let me see, where was I? Uh, yeah, man was going to, and he fell among robbers. It could just, again, he fell among robbers, could just mean he's walking and then robbers fell upon him and then just beat him up. They stripped him, beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this guy is naked, dead, bleeding on, on the, well, dying and bleeding on the side of the road. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Um, I've heard, I mean, there's different ways to kind of, and church fathers and like Martin Luther and others will, will, will pick out, you know, the priest and the Levite and say, well, this is a representation of the temple. This is a representation of the Le Levitical system. This is a representation of the law, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of ways you can go with this and kind of get into specifics. They're not explicitly mentioned. But, I mean, I guess it kind of fits. I've seen some people say, well, you know, the priest and the Levite shouldn't touch this guy who appears dead because touching a dead body is against the Levitical law. They would be unclean. Well, correct. They would be unclean, but it wouldn't be a sin. And this is a distinction that we have to understand that we don't really make anymore because we don't have, like, the cleanliness system uh, that the Levitical law prescribed for Israel, uh, for the Israelites. This idea that if you touch a dead body or, you know, there's certain, there's certain things that you do that after doing them, you become unclean. So there's a certain amount of time that you have to wait and you have to go through purification processes to become clean. It doesn't mean that you're, sin, you're, you're covered in sin. It means that you're not in a state where you can approach, for example, the altar or you can't do 
I don't know, you can't, you can't engage in, in certain activities. So, for example, a priest may be required to deal with lepers, and dealing with lepers could make you unclean. Well, but that's part of his job as well. So in this case, if you want to use the excuse that, well, the Levite and the priest, they had to remain clean to do their jobs. Well, no, this is part of their job is to, is to help take care of this, this person. Um, and it doesn't mention that he's a Samaritan. I mean, you just assume that he's, he's Jewish as well. So to help their, their fellow man, that's, that's their obligation. And yeah, that's what they pass by on the side of the road. But again, if you want to look at this as Jesus's parable telling thing, where, for example, he'll do the parable of the, the Pharisee and the, the, the tax collector. Uh, and the tax collectors are notorious bad guys. Pharisees are notorious good guys. Uh, and Jesus reverses the roles and the, the tax collector goes home justified. In this case, the priest and the Levite would be the good guys. And in such a case, they end up they end up being the bad guys in their action. They're good guys in their kind of archetype, bad guys in their action. Samaritan is a bad guy in his archetype, good guy in his action here. And so, again, Jesus does this with pretty much every parable. Um, all right, uh, let me see. Verse... We see 32, pass by the other side, 33. But a Samaritan, ooh, boo, the other crowd is going, boo, hiss, bad guy. Uh, but a Mormon, as he journeyed down, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Um, I'm trying to remember if this is a splagnizomai. It might be. Um, I, I don't have it, the Greek in front of me. Uh, but that's that's a phrase that's always exclusively used for either Jesus or for people who, re- who in parables, who represent Jesus. Um all right, 34, and he went on to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. Uh, oil and wine, I mean, I guess you could, yeah, these would be, you know, disinfectant-type things uh, as, as well. Um, I'm trying to think if you would really want to equate this to the sacraments. I mean, you've got, you know, holy anointing or whatever. If you're Roman Catholic, you call that a sacrament. But depending on what you call a sacrament, sure. The Bible does talk about um, anointing the, the ill and the near death. Uh, with oil, but I don't know that this is like, if you want to make this about baptism, there is sometimes oil used in baptism, but I don't, it's kind of a stretch for me to, you know, to make this about baptism again, make it about the Lord's supper. Cause there's wine. Not, not really. You don't pour wine on people in the Lord's supper. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, the, I was gonna say Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is taking care of this person. Um, okay, puts him on his own animal and brings him to the inn to take to take care of him. Okay, and the next day he took out two denarii, denarii, denarii. Um, so a denarius is a uh, is a day's wages. So this is the next day. He takes him to an inn, and then the next day. So presumably he's already he's already paid for one day. He gives it to the innkeeper, says, "Take care of him. Whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back." And he's paying for for two extra days. So one plus two equals three. You could definitely make a connection for Jesus returns in three days. Uh, Because, you know, why is the Samaritan going off and coming back in three days? Well, you know, in the story, maybe he's like a merchant or something like that, and he's got some business to attend to. Uh, In, in, if you're going to say this is an allegory for Christ, well, it's because he, you know, the three days, the the death on the cross uh, in the tomb and then the resurrection on Sunday morning. Um, You could, you could definitely make that connection. I think you should. All right. uh, Repay you, repay you when I come back. Uh, so then Jesus ends the parable there. He doesn't say, you know, then it comes back and then the guy's better and then the guy goes on and, you know, like Zacchaeus, he repays or, you know, whatever. So, so Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Uh, no, so this is, this, I got really hung up on this this time around. I was so, I was so fascinated with this aspect because the way this begins, the, um, the lawyer is basically saying, who do I have to be nice to? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus, when he finishes this story, 
he asks the question about who is the neighbor, but he doesn't ask, but he doesn't ask it in like, who, who was, the, who was the Samaritan's neighbor is not the question he asked. So the guy says, well, who do I really have to be nice to? Uh, and then Jesus rephrases neighbor as who is nice to this person. So when Jesus says, is talking about the neighbor, the neighbor is the person who is, who, who is good to his fellow man, who is good to the person who is in need. But I think it goes both ways. I think it answers both questions. I mean, you, you are a neighbor when you are hurting and you are a neighbor when you are helping. So, but I, I just, I mean, for whatever reason, I didn't catch it. This is what I love about reading the Bible is every time I go through these texts, I always find something more. There has never, never, ever, ever been a case where I'm going through a text for, you know, that I've done a sermon on or a Bible study on or whatever, and I don't see something like new and fascinating. And usually it's because I'm reading somebody else's commentary and they point something out. I'm like, whoa, that's so cool. <laughs> but sometimes I'm just reading the text. Like in this case, I was like, oh, wow. They're, they're, they're asking about the neighbor, but they're asking two different questions. But they're also the same question. They're also related. They're both neighbors. They're both equals, the one who's in need and the one who is helping the one in need. I was like, oh, that's so cool. Anyways, <laughs> that really got me got me hung up on that that neighbor aspect. Um, so, okay. So, and then, of course, a lawyer can't really weasel his way out of this. He says, he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. So, one of the... Uh, one of the arguments people have, I love there was a, I think Dr. David P. Scare had a, um, he had a presentation or a book or something like that um, called uh, Lex, uh, Lex Semper Accusat, really? <laughs> and and, and that, that means the law only, ex, ex, excuse me, the law only accuses, comma, really? So a lot of people will, will maybe incorrectly say, well, you know, the law is for is for unbelievers. You got the first and second use of the law, um, and and this is for unbelievers. I mean, as as Lutherans, we confess that there are three uses of the law: you know, curb, mirror, and guide. The curb, uh, the, the first use of the law, is to prevent society from just going off going off the rails. Like people say, well, you know, you can't legislate morality. Well, you absolutely can, and you should. And if you've got a biblical sort of precedent for you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal then you can make those into civil laws. And there can be a degree of civic righteousness that, that people are obligated to follow. So people don't murder because the law says not to murder. And the law that says not to murder is based on the biblical law that says not to murder. So the first use of the law is is exclusively for unbelievers because Christians presumably shouldn't want to murder anyway. But So the first use is to curb the behavior of unbelievers. The second use of the law, curb, mirror, and guide. The second use of the law is to show us our sins. So we're like, okay, well, I see that I've broken all of the Ten Commandments, so this shows me my sin, and I need a Savior. Okay, well, fantastic. This is for unbelievers and for and for believers to a, to a degree. I mean, you should know your sin. The, the second use of the law reminds you why you need to repent and why you need a Savior. Fantastic. The third use of the law, curb, mirror, and guide, is as a guide is to is to, to tell you how you should then act as, as, as a Christian. And Martin Luther talks about this uh, a lot. He talks about like this idea of "thou shalt not murder" doesn't just mean don't go out and you know kill people, but um, but it also means that you should protect people. "Thou shalt not steal" also means that you should look out for the well-being of your of your neighbors' you know possessions and stuff. If somebody's breaking into their house, then you know you should look out and call the call the police for them. Um, so in such a case. Uh, you go and do likewise is a command to the Christians as well. This is the idea of sanctification is your active role in sanctification, your participation, cooperation with the Holy Spirit. You didn't cooperate to be saved. That was all God. But now that you are saved, how are you to behave? You go and do likewise. And I was so proud. I was so proud of the, uh, and this is, this happens, I'm going to call it a God thing. 
Uh, every once in a while, I'll have a ser- Most of my sermon titles are garbage. <laughs> like, don't, whatever you do, do not look up. If you ever find my sermons, don't look up the sermon titles because they're usually trash. Um, but this one, every once in a while, I'll find, I'll find a line. I'll be like, man, that's such a good line. Uh, I'm so smart. And then I'll think, I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just quoting the Bible. Um, so the, the sermon title for this one was actually, you are free to, quote, go and do likewise because he freely did it first. So this idea being that that you can go and do likewise. You can go and act out your sanctification because you were first justified. So in this way, I was able to give a sermon about law, but in the sense that, you know, it's couched in the gospel. It is, you are able to follow the law because you were saved. So this is, so, you know, C.F.W. Walther presumably wouldn't rise from his grave and, and try to try to choke me because <laughs> because I I ended on the law. Uh, you know, this gospel account ends on the law, but it ends on the law in such a case that it's it the, the gospel dominates. So this is this is one of the tricks to sermon writing is 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 that the gospel must must dominate. And there's some cases where you absolutely need more law than others. If there's a specific sin that you need to address, there's going to be a lot of law. But it shouldn't be a sermon that basically ends with people feeling hopeless. In this case, you are to go and do likewise, yes, but why? Because Christ did it first. You're not going to be able to do likewise perfectly, but thankfully, Christ got you covered, literally, with you know his, his blood, with his the forgiveness of sins. So, in such a case, uh, this is kind of the direction I went with the sermon this time, is, is you could say, okay, it's a law-oriented sermon. Yes, it is. It's the third use of the law. But the third use of the law is only applicable to those who have first been saved. So it is law based on the gospel, not law as, you know, in, in contrast to the gospel. So, uh, again, you're going to have to, if you don't like <laughs> that distinction, you can take it up with Jesus because he definitely... Uh, he ends on the "You go and do likewise." I just this is one of those sun- Sundays. There's every once in a while you'll have a you'll have a Sunday that ends with one of these these lines from Jesus, and you're like, "Man, that is harsh law." Um, and, you know, and behold, you know, he will throw you into prison, and you will stay in prison until you've paid the last penny. And then after that, we say, "This is the gospel of the Lord," and the gospel means the good news. So I I, it, I get a, a teeny chuckle every time I get one of these gospel readings, and it ends on like this really harsh law note, and. Uh, and we say this is the gospel of the Lord. It's true. It is true. You know, it's the gospel account. But uh, it's it's also kind of funny. In any case, that is enough of me yammering uh, for this recording, kind of talking about the things that I saw in the text that were, they were mildly interesting to me in the text, or majorly interesting to me in the text. If you'd like to keep listening, I'm going to cut to the audio of the sermon that I gave this last Sunday. If you've already heard the sermon, go ahead and check out. If you want to hear the sermon again for some reason, you're like, oh, this is what he was talking about. Feel free to listen. You can hear me, you know, flub the lines and stummer, stummer, stutter, stammer and stutter over over myself. Um, delivery is not my strong suit, I, I, I suppose. But uh, yeah, anyways, God bless you all. Take care and enjoy the sermon. Grace, mercy, and peace be on you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for the sermon this morning is from the gospel reading, which you have just heard. Now, the Gospel reading contains the story of the Good Samaritan as well as the interaction that prompted Jesus to tell the story, as well as Jesus' questions to the lawyer after the story. A lot of you should probably be familiar with this story. It's one of the most well-known stories in, in all of Scripture. It's interesting is, well, I don't know how interesting it is for you, but it never mentions that it's a parable. So this is absolutely something that could have happened that Jesus is talking about, or it's a parable. Either way, it works. The epistle reading for today talks about the righteousness of Abraham. Not that Abraham was righteous because of the good works he did, 
but because he had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. In particular, Paul points out how it was impossible for Abraham to be justified by obedience to the law. Think about the Ten Commandments. It was impossible for Abraham to be justified by the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments weren't given for another 430 years. How could he be justified, justified by a law he did not yet have? Abraham was not righteous because of the good works he did, but because he had faith. Because of this, when we look at the story of the Good Samaritan, it's good to keep in mind that this story is not, this story is not about the works that you have to do in order to be saved. Be a Good Samaritan and then God will let you into heaven. Be a Pharisee, a Levite, or a priest and God will not let you into heaven. That's not, what, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not do this and get to heaven. Oh, that is kind of the question that the lawyer asks that prompts the story. It's a story about how you were saved. So clearly the person who was dead, or near dead in the story, is the one who is in sin and in need of salvation. The Bible talks about you were dead in sin and trespass. There's a pretty clear parallel here. The one who saves him, takes him somewhere to rest, and returns three days later is Jesus, the one who does all the good work. Again, it's a pretty clear parallel here. So in this way, Jesus is talking about his work of love in seeing us as desperate, dying, and in need of a savior. It's a reference to our helplessness, excuse me, our helplessness and total reliance on him to accomplish what we could not. This is absolutely true. This is a wonderful message. And it's the message that usually comes out when, when this text comes up. It's a wonderful comfort to take away from this story. However, the context of the story is not the lawyer saying, Jesus, please tell me a parable about how you love us. Please tell me about a parable about how you will die and, and, and raise from the dead and how you'll come back three days later. The context seems to show that there's more that God wants to tell us in this story. So all that stuff is good. God did rescue you when you were dead in sin and trespass, when you had no one else to turn to. But there's more to the story. And you see this in the interaction that led up to it. Through this interaction, we see that it starts and ends with a question about salvation and a statement about sanctification. That means to be made clean, to be made holy. This means once you are already saved, how do you go about living out that, that righteousness? A statement about Christian behavior. So the encounter begins like this. And behold, I love that and behold. Anytime there's and behold, it's just like suddenly. And suddenly there appeared a puff of smoke and a lawyer was standing there, twiddling his mustache. <laughs> I have a contract. No, uh, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when you think of a lawyer, that's not what this is talking about. This isn't a, tr a trial lawyer. This isn't a secular court system. This person questioning Jesus is an expert on biblical law. So that's what he is when it, when it says he's a lawyer. He's not somebody who's, you know, uh, I was going to say called J.D. Wentworth. No, who's a, a TV lawyer or whatever. He's not one of those, he better call Saul. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about somebody who's an expert in biblical law. So traditionally, faithful communities would resolve their disputes within themselves without involving secular legal systems. Now, it is truly a shame that we live in a world now where we rely on people who don't believe in the love, justice, and mercy of God to rule on disputes, on legal disputes for Christians against each other. It's much better to resolve everything we can in the community of believers. So if one of us has a problem with somebody else, we don't immediately run out and sue them. 
We don't immediately go out and get them arrested. You know, he said something wrong to me, and, and, and that's defamation and slander and, and whatnot. I'm going to have them arrested. Is we try to resolve disputes within ourselves, in the community of believers. Again, we talked about in Bible study, we talked about families and the dynamic of, of parents providing for their children. In the same way, if a brother and sister argue with one another, it, it, presumably as children, one of them doesn't just go and get a lawyer. That's not how the system works, is you try to resolve it with each other. And if you can't resolve it, that you involve the parents and they help you resolve this dispute. And this would be wonderful if we could keep doing this as Christians. The Bible talks about um, resolving your Resolving your conflict with your brother before he takes you to a lawyer and they throw you in prison and you will not get out until you paid the last penny. This is the gospel of the Lord. <laughs> Jesus talks about that, that situation that you want to avoid. Ideally, you want to have some sort of reconciliation within, within the Christian system. So this is what this guy was. He wasn't a secular trial lawyer. He was an expert on biblical law and he would help rule on disputes for the religious community. Now, in any case, this guy, I mean, the thing to keep in mind is he's an expert. He's an expert on the Bible, either, either as a teacher, either as I'm a lawyer, therefore I teach other people the law, or as somebody who practices the law, as somebody who says, you have a dispute here, this is what the Bible says, this is how to resolve the dispute. Okay. Either way, he has to know the Bible very well. So this lawyer asks a question that we as Christians all know the answer to. How can someone be saved? What happens so we inherit eternal life? Well, according to the Bible, there's two ways to get to eternal life. They're based on two different covenants. Either a person has to perfectly follow the law, or a person has to have their sin covered by the blood of Christ. They're covered by the righteousness of Christ. His sacrifice on the cross. Now, since we know that nobody is good enough to follow the law perfectly, then the correct answer is, of course, Christ. This is how you are saved, by faith through grace. Not by works so that no one can boast. This is what the Bible says. In this case, however, the lawyer seems to actually believe that he had followed the law well enough to be saved. He just wanted Jesus to acknowledge it. What must I do? What must everybody do to be saved? Hint, the answer is be just like me, Jesus. Go ahead, tell them. Follow the law just like I've done. Well, Jesus says this to him. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers, a very good answer, he answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is the summary of the law. You'll see this later on, that the, the, two, the two commandments. The first commandment is great, and the second one is like it. Love God and love your neighbor. Now certainly, the lawyer should have known that Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness, 430 years before Moses gave the law. But he also knew that the covenant with Moses and the Israelites required perfect obedience to the law in exchange for salvation. Lawyer term, quid pro quo, one thing for another. I give you something, you give me something. A mutual exchange. In, Gen in Genesis chapters 19, or is it Genesis? Exodus. 19, Exodus 19, 20, and I believe 22, Basically, God gives the Ten Commandments to the people, and he says, follow these laws. And they say, we promise we will follow them all perfectly. Like, that's, that's, their, that's their thing. They say, we're going to do it. We swear we will follow all the laws perfectly. Scouts honor. Scouts, scouts honor. We will follow all the laws perfectly. And then they went and failed immediately, because that's what we do as people. We fail immediately. But their promise was, we were going to follow all the laws perfectly and be saved. And this guy should have known by now, nobody has been able to do that. 
So unlike the Christian who, who trusts in the cross, unlike the Christian who says, I have failed in following the law. Everybody I know has failed in following the law. I need somebody to save me and somebody to follow the law for me. The Christian who trusts in the cross, this man trusted in himself. So Jesus plays along with this guy. This guy knows the law, so how did he do? You know the law. Here's the Ten Commandments. Let's do a checklist. How many of these have you broken? So Jesus plays along. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And I love how Jesus doesn't just answer him directly. There's this, some people have read this as though Jesus is annoyed that he would even try to justify himself in such a way like, yeah, God, I know you said to love others as myself, but like others, others, or like just the people I like, others, like my family or the Gentile others. And so, like a lawyer, he wants to try to justify himself not by saying, I failed, but by saying, well, it depends on what the meaning of is is. It, de <laughs> it depends on what the law really says. Who, but who is my neighbor really? Is it just the guy who lives next to me? Because that's not so bad. But the guy two houses down, I hate his dog. I don't want to be his neighbor. So he tries to justify himself. Now the lawyer's response is quite telling. He doesn't respond like the rich man. So you remember there's another interaction where a rich man, uh, it, it, he says, you know, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, follow all of these laws. And the rich man says, I have followed all these laws from my birth. He believes he really has followed the laws. And then instead he realizes he hasn't lived up to God's perfect standard. So Jesus then says to him, then sell, every, er, sell everything you have and go and follow me. And the rich man leaves sad. Because he realized he, he hasn't followed all of God's laws after all. This is a different interaction. This guy doesn't walk away sad and say, I haven't followed all of God's laws. Instead, he tries to justify himself. He tries to lawyer his way out of it by almost changing the subject. So rather than saying, yes, I did this. Yes, I followed those laws. Or, no, I didn't follow those laws. He asks Jesus to define his neighbor. Now, this is a sneaky trick. This is the kind of thing you'd expect from a politician or a lawyer. When you ask them a question, it's a non-answer, a non-answer. Uh, there's a phrase I heard that I like. It says, don't answer the question you're given, answer the question you want. When somebody answers you, asks you a tough question, the weaselly way to get around it is either respond with another question, who is my neighbor? Or to just say, well, you know, there's plenty of great people in the world, and I'm not maybe one of them, but I'm not one of the bad people. That's not the question. The question is, here's the Ten Commandments. Did you follow them, yes or no? So anyways, he tries to get around this. It's a sneaky trick. And Jesus doesn't fall for it. In any case, Jesus tells this man the famous story of the Good Samaritan. The bad guy, the Samaritan. Again, the Old Testament talks about how naughty the Samaritans were. Uh, and they, they, they didn't get along with the, with the, the people in Jerusalem, the, the Jews. He talks about the story where the bad guy, the Samaritan, ends up helping where the priest and the Levite would not. The priest and the Levite would be good guys. They didn't help. The bad guy helps. Jesus does that old switcheroo that he does in every story. So at the end of the story, Jesus, Jesus concludes with the lawyer with this exchange. He says, which of these three, the Samaritan, the Levite, and the priest, which of these three proved to be a neighbor who fell among the robbers, to the men who fell among the robbers? He said to him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So of the three, the Samaritan, the priest, and the Levite, Jesus asks, who was a neighbor to the hurt man? Which of these three was a neighbor to the hurt man? And of course, the answer is the good Samaritan. 
And Jesus tells the lawyer to go and behave the same way. So with this story, again, Jesus does confirm our helplessness and God's salvation for us helpless people. We can say, yes, we are the person on the side of the road, and Jesus saves us. But he also ends with the phrase, you go and do likewise. So we shouldn't ignore that portion of the text. It's really easy to preach this and say, this is a great story about God's salvation for us. But that phrase at the end, you, you go and do likewise, means that I have to preach the law, that there is some law in this. So yes, you have been saved as a Christian. So God expects you to act in a certain way, to love God and to love your neighbor. You were saved, now how should you act? So it's interesting that in this story, Jesus takes this man's question and he reverses it. The man asks who he is required to love. Who is my neighbor? You know, love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus reverses that. In the story, who is he supposed to help? Jesus reverses that by asking who acted as a neighbor, as in who loved, who helped. So the man says, who am I supposed to love? And Jesus says, who loved the other person? Who am I supposed to love? Who loved the other person? He reverses the question. So both the helper and the helpee are neighbors. It's not that the good Samaritan was a neighbor and the man on the side of the road was not. It's not that the man on the side of the road was a neighbor and the good Samaritan was not. They're both neighbors. In this way, you can put yourself in both of these roles, depending on your situation. The one who loves you and loves God is your neighbor, just like the Samaritan was a neighbor of the wounded man. But also, the people that God put in your path for you to help, they are your neighbor. You are their neighbor. Neighbors look out for each other. Neighbors take care of each other. Neighbors provide for each other. It can take all that punch out of Jesus' story simply to say, well, who is your neighbor? Well, the entire world. The entire world is your neighbor. Okay, well, I'm not going to, like, how do I help the entire world when they're bleeding out on the side of the road? That's just, it's, it's too much. It's, yes, you're supposed to love your fellow man, but the story about the Samaritan is specifically about encountering somebody directly in his path, in his life. The story of the Samaritan is not the story of him donating to global charities or generally having goodwill toward the rest of the planet. It's specific. It's very specific, which makes it hard to avoid. It's easy to say, yeah, I'm a good neighbor. Everybody's my neighbor, so generally I'm a good neighbor. But when somebody says, that is your neighbor, take care of them, then it's a, then it's a yes or no, did you take care of them or not? The people put directly in the life of this directly in the path in the life of this Samaritan. So, when you apply this story to your life, be specific. Is there somebody that you've encountered in your life or in your line of work, at your school, or somebody specific that you have the ability to help? Now, it isn't a command to go walk through downtown Tucson to put money in the cup of every single panhandler you can find. Certainly, you should love them too, but this is a command to be a neighbor to somebody specific in your life. Now maybe the person you can show love to is your literal neighbor, the person who lives next to you. You can prove to be a neighbor. I wrote this at the beginning of the week, and those of you who know what happened last night in the church might get a chuckle of it. You can prove to be a neighbor when you take care of a rattlesnake on your neighbor's property, or when you help carry your neighbor's groceries in. I know, I wrote this Last night we had a rattlesnake come in here and some good neighbors in the congregation called up somebody and they took care of it. They took care of a rattlesnake on the property. 
Man, it's like you guys already know the Bible. <laughs> so you are good neighbors by taking care of this rattlesnake. Or when you help carry your neighbor's groceries in. Your husband or your wife is your neighbor. They live closer to you than anybody else, even than the person who lives in the house next to you. Be on the lookout every day how you can prove to be a good neighbor for them. You can be a neighbor to your siblings or to your children, to your friends and to those you work with. This is God's expectation of you to act like a Christian. Not just who was helpless and saved. Yes, that happened. You were helpless and God saved you. But you are now somebody who is able to help others. In the Bible, the golden rule is given by God, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The fact of the matter is that today you might be in a position of, of the Good Samaritan. You might be healthy. You might be walking through your life when you come upon somebody specific who needs you. Somebody who needs you specifically. The next day, you might be the one lying on the side of the road. You might be desperate for someone to help you. One day, you may find a rattlesnake in church. The next day, the rattlesnake might be in your house and somebody from church comes with a shovel. And thanks be to God that we have good neighbors on both sides. One day, you may be comforting a friend at a funeral of his family member. The same year, he may be comforting you at a funeral for one of your own. This isn't something that should depress you. This isn't something that should make you sad. It's actually an extremely comforting reality. As Christians, this means we can rely on one, one another for support. We know that we have the support of the Christian family when we need it the most. We can joyfully help one another because we know that they are there to joyfully help us. Even though there will be bad days, God has provided for you an entire congregation of neighbors to be there when you need it the most. More than that, you can have comfort in the ultimate Good Samaritan. God himself, he saw you at your lowest moment and sacrificed himself on the cross to pay for that sin. He rose three days later so that you too would live. So with this, you are free to go and model the behavior of your Good Samaritan. To go and love others because he first loved you. You are free to go and do likewise because he freely did it first. Now the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.